This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by REI Co-op. Did you know that about half of all people who go outside, who hike trails and climb mountains and run rivers and sail oceans, are women and girls? That they make up more than half of the consumers of outdoor clothes and gear. There are girls and women outdoors always. I think where they're missing is in the media. Stacy Mulraney is the creative director behind a new REI effort called Force of Nature. They want to make the outdoors the largest level playing field on Earth. There are plenty of girls and women doing amazing killer stuff outside, and it's not always documented, it's not always told. Stacy's got her own amazing killer stories. Like that time she decided to go fight forest fires. She just finished up her last semester of college in New York City. You know, I think my mom thought I had lost my mind. And yeah, I had a, I had some shocked faces. But it just seemed like I wanted to do something that I'd never done before. And so I was on the road in a giant van that they call a crummy for four months. And that was, you know, you're working 12 to 16 hours a day. And you're camping every night. And you're hiking and you're cutting trail. Stacy was one of just a handful of women out there. When there's a great adventure story told, it's so often a guy, and we are, we are turning a spotlight on women and the amazing stuff that they're doing, because you can't be what you can't see. Starting in May, REI is showcasing new gear and launching new classes, new events, and new adventure travel programs designed for women by women. Check it out at rei.com slash forceofnature. From Outside Magazine and PRX, these are Dispatches, stories from our writers in the field. There's a new issue of Outside about to hit mailboxes, and it's something the magazine has never done before. The issue is 100% written by women, about women, and it marks a tipping point for a really exciting shift going on at Outside, and in the outdoors in general. Basically, the outdoor industry is waking up to the fact that half of everyone outside are not men. Women rip and shred and stand up for the environment. Outside's tagline is, live bravely. Women embody that. So, in this issue, and more importantly going forward, we're expanding coverage of women, both in the magazine and here on the podcast. More stories about women, more stories by women, or you might say, more stories. To start things off, I'm handing over the mic to Florence Williams, a longtime writer for the magazine, who, over the coming weeks, is going to be talking to kick-ass women who have done all kinds of extraordinary things. We're calling the series Double X Factor, and it begins with the story of Beth Rodden, who wrote this very powerful, very personal essay for this issue, with outside Elizabeth Weil. I think it's impossible to read it without wanting to know more about Beth. So Florence flew to California to meet her. Florence will take it from here. I, I met Beth on this kind of rainy day. She lives in this cute little house in Berkeley. Uh, and out back, there's this shed. It looks, you know, like a basic garage. But when you open the door <laughs> inside, on the floor, there are about eight old mattresses. What does it smell like? Chalk? Chalk. Yeah, chalk and climbing holes. If you're into climbing at all, you've probably heard of Beth Rodden. As a kid in the 90s, she was the star on the sport climbing circuit. And she went on to become this really well-decorated pro climber. 
Or you might remember Beth as the teen who was kidnapped while climbing with friends in Kyrgyzstan 17 years ago. That experience and their daring escape affected their lives in some unexpected ways. I just kind of shoved it in a box and, you know, perhaps if I had addressed it, things would have been different. We'll get to that. But let's start back in Davis, California. That's where Beth started competing when she was just 14. How teeny were you? 80 pounds, 85 pounds and like five feet. Beth had this incredible sense of discipline, of structure. Like, she was totally committed to routine, down to the clothes she would wear to compete and the number of apple slices she would pack for a trip to a meet. Even the same model car, a Mercury Mystique, that she and her dad rented from Hertz every time they flew somewhere for a competition. I was definitely... I, and I, I'd be lying if I said I'm not still, but like a little superstitious when it comes around that stuff. I'm like, well, I did really get at that competition wearing my dad's fleece. So that must have been part of why I did good, you know? Uh-huh. And so, and then I'm like, well, and I did really good because I ate at the Olive Garden the night before. So that has to be part of the reason. you had two and a half breadsticks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> she laughs now, but there was a darker side to that rigid sense of control. You know, I was super restrictive. You know, I ate the same thing. And if I, you know, my friends were going out for pizza or something, I was like, no, I'm not going to go do that. I'm eating, you know, my salad today and I'm running this many miles and I'm going to train for six hours in the gym. And so, yeah. Do you look back on that as being kind of an eating disorder? Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, it's part of, you know, I don't, I'm not very versed on what people label what, you know, but... I wonder if it's one of the sort of unspoken secrets of climbing, in a way, in women. I mean, we know, like, ballet, you know, there's a lot of anorexia. It's not something we typically associate it, associate with climbing. Yeah, it's interesting. I definitely think it it is, in each genre of climbing, a, a different thing. Um, so back then, I think it was, it was pretty widespread in the competition and probably sport climbing. And now you see these taller, much more muscular women... But, you know, I think it's definitely an unspoken thing that people don't really talk about. But at some point you got to a place where you were like, hey, I'm ready to eat. Yeah. <laughs> I think, it, you know, when, when I started climbing outside more. Actually, a lot of Beth's life has been about coming to terms with that tension in climbing and life between self-mastery and self-forgiveness. It's been a long journey. Halfway through her freshman year at UC Davis, Beth decided to take off and basically live under a rock face at Smith Rock. That's a famous climbing area in Oregon. She became fixated on a particular route that was rated 514A, meaning extremely difficult. Barely any climbers, let alone women, were doing routes that hard. After weeks of trying and failing and failing, she finally nailed it. And she became the youngest woman ever to climb a 514A. I took pictures of her on her first 514. That's Lynn Hill, a major legend in the rock climbing world, and one of Beth's personal heroes. She was also hanging out at Smith Rock back then. I, I guess I felt a little bit like um, I, I'm old enough to be her mother, so I felt like I was a role model for her in, in some way, and I could teach her about real rock climbing, not just 
pulling on plastic. So Lynn invited her to attempt a first ascent in Madagascar. I was working with the North Face at the time, and they wanted me to be the leader of an all-women's expedition. So I thought, well, of course it makes sense to have a younger woman come along. And Beth was just a shining star that seemed really psyched and eager to go. So that's how that all came about. She took a huge chance on me. Okay, yeah, so this is a big leap for Beth. Like, I cried the whole way up to the approach because I was just like, what am I doing here? I have no idea where I am. Where are my parents? You know, I don't know how to place a piece of gear in my life. I do recall her being very out of her element. That's Lynn again. And thinking, oh my. But yeah, I knew she was wondering what she was doing because there were times when the van would, or this went on dirt roads for a long time, and the van would break down. And the guy would put gasoline in his mouth and squirt it into the carburetor or something. And that was the way he'd get it started. So we were feeling very (laughs) dependent on some pretty sketchy means. And so imagine if you're climbing on a a new route with potential hazards that you don't know about. That's the whole idea of adventure. And if you get hurt, how are you going to get to the hospital? If it's a really serious injury you're pretty much stuck with your first aid skills. So now I I look at that situation and say, well, she was pretty courageous to go to a place like Madagascar at 19. The team spent almost two and a half weeks on the climb. It was grueling. Beth's fingers bled. She learned how to pee from a harness. It was the beginning of her education in suffering and in letting go of being in control all the time. She liked it. Before that, I was still, you know, had one foot in the school door, and I saw that as maybe there is a way to travel and climb full-time, and now's my chance. Soon after the trip, Beth started dating her very first boyfriend, another rock climber named Tommy Caldwell. For their first date, they went to the Cheesecake Factory. For their second date, they spent a month camped out under El Capitan in Yosemite. He was, like, so excited about climbing, and I was so excited about climbing. And, you know, we could kind of, like, dream up these big adventures together, and it was great. Barely a month into the relationship, Beth invited Tommy on a six-week climbing trip to Kyrgyzstan. The trip was funded by Beth's then-sponsor, the North Face, and they planned to go with two other friends, Jason Smith and John Dickey. Um, Let's just pause here for a second to remind you that this was the year 2000, so before 9-11. Americans weren't thinking much about extremists in Central Asia. Meanwhile, though, Beth was having second thoughts about the trip, but they were about Tommy. Things just weren't clicking romantically. A week before the trip, she tried to break up with him. He talked her out of it. He's an amazing guy, you know, he's like so kind and nice and I hate conflict. And I was like, oh, maybe you're right, but it'll be fine. (laughs) So we'll just like deal with that later. In June, the four of them helicoptered into the Karasu Valley, right on the border with Uzbekistan. And they began establishing a route up this really imposing granite cliff called the Yellow Wall. The plan was to climb for four days, sleeping on portal edges that dangled from the rock. That first night on the wall was Tommy's 22nd birthday. Beth brought along some freeze-dried chocolate pudding and a candle. 
the three friends, Beth, Jason, and John, saying happy birthday. Early the next morning, they woke to gunshots. They were forced to climb down and abandon their gear. And um, from that point on, we were held hostage by these rebels. The men were connected to al-Qaeda, and they needed hostages for leverage and maybe for ransom. And these guys weren't messing around. That first day, Beth and the others watched as their captors executed a Kyrgyz soldier. They dragged him behind a rock and shot him in the head. I was so scared, and I was, like, in tears. I was the only one in tears, you know, the guys. You know, Jason joked with me. He's like, you're wasting, you're wasting water by crying. For six nights, the hostages were forced to march across freezing mountain terrain. There was no clean water, hardly any food. And, you know, we were shoved in these hiding spots for 12 hours a day, and you would bond with the person you were with. I was put with John. But then you try to make conversation with the captors, and it's not like they can, we spoke the same language, but you can get across things with charades and, you know, hand gestures and things like that. In the beginning, I had no idea, you know, if they were going to rape me or treat me differently or, or whatnot. And um, John, you know, I have no idea if it made a difference. I like to think that it did. But he showed um, a picture of Tommy and me together to the captors in the beginning and tried to convey to them that we were married, even though we weren't, in hopes that maybe they would respect that a little bit more. What What were your captors like? Did they have personalities that you... You know, were you were you trying to kind of not notice their personalities, or or did you think maybe kind of interpersonal reaction was a, was a way to help you get out of the situation? So um, John and Jason had a really good tactic of trying to like befriend our captors. You know, so I, I was terrified, but John and Jason, you know, and Tommy had their heads on a little bit, and we're like, we're gonna try and make these guys like us, so they'll trust us. On the sixth night, the rebels let their guard down. We were left alone with one captor to climb this ridge, and he was clearly uncomfortable. And we were, I mean, for professional climbers, it was, you know, like walking down a flat sidewalk. It was really easy. But to somebody who didn't know how to climb, he would give us his hand and, like, ask for help. The guy's name was Sue. Tommy asked Beth, should I push him? She didn't say yes, but she didn't say no. It took Tommy only seconds to climb up above Sue. He yanked on his gun strap, sending him tumbling off the cliff face. That sound of somebody hitting a ledge and kind of like deflating, it was awful. You know, he broke down on the top and was like, I can't believe I just killed somebody. I told myself up there, I was like, well, you can never leave Tommy now, you know, like, look at what he's done. And, and you know, of course, all of us were like reassuring him that, no, it's a, you just saved our lives, you know. It's amazing, just, you know, you're a great person but we got to get out of here, so we just started running.
So that must have been just an unbelievably intense moment. Oh, it was crazy. I mean, we hadn't eaten basically in six days. We had, you know, one bar each for six days. So what is that? A few hundred calories. And, you know, you're at 11,000 feet and shivering. And, and But that adrenaline, we were able to just run down canyon for, you know, a handful of miles. And, yeah, it was very unsettling. They made it out to an army base and eventually a U.S. embassy. No one even knew they'd been missing. Months later, they found out from an American journalist that Sue had actually survived the fall. But it didn't change the basic calculus. Tommy had committed a desperate act for her sake, as well as his own. And at what point did you start thinking about what impact this would have on your relationship with him? That's a really good question. I think not until, you know, our relationship started to break down years and years later. I just shoved everything deep down because I was so afraid to think about it. You know, as anytime I thought about Kyrgyzstan in a deep way, you know, I had like my five sentence summary or whatever that I would give at slideshows or that I would talk to a reporter about. But if I went deeper than that, you know, I'd start to get nightmares again and I would, it was very uncomfortable. But, you know, I, it's not like it didn't have effects on my life, even when it was shoved in a box. You know, I was avoidant of certain people and never wanted to go back, never really wanted to travel. And your your five-minute summary at Slideshows was, was really kind of triumphant, right? It was like, I conquered this and now I'm stronger, which is sort of the narrative I think people want to hear. Absolutely, yeah. You know, it's... it's um, it is that kind of like mountaineer mentality. You know, it's like I got my toes froze off, but I got to the summit and now I know you can suffer through anything and conquer your dreams, you know, or what whatnot. So the Kyrgyzstan was, yeah, you know, we went through this terrible experience. We bonded together. We were stronger because of it. And yeah. Do you think it was kind of classic post-traumatic stress in a way? Um, I, yeah, probably. Yeah. You know, and it's really interesting, you know, because some people deem deem things as like post-traumatic strength you know like some climbers and I'm like wow that's I wish it was like that that you could like go through this and just be stronger but for me I I do think now after going to therapy and like really working on it that now I can like think about it in an okay way but I couldn't have done that just as a 19 year old kid you know back then Beth just wanted to be whole again She wanted to get back to being that girl who has it all under control. And she took that on with Tommy. They got married. They pushed themselves as climbers harder than ever. They were relentless, and they were a team. Everything was together. We had the same email address. We had the same cell phone. We had, it was just Beth and Tommy. It was never Beth or Tommy. They smashed one climbing record after another. But for Beth, the satisfaction didn't last. You know, it was like the post-send blues. You know, you'd be on this kind of high and really happy for, you know, a few weeks or months or however long. Um, And then at some point you were like, huh, well, I guess I should do something else now. (laughs) And so it was like kind of this like cycle, you know. A treadmill. Yeah, at some point to keep going, pushing higher and higher and higher, it's 
broke me down. You know, I needed needed some normalcy and. Do you think you were just exhausted too on some level? I'm sure I was, yeah, exhausted on some level, but I also, and I missed climbing for fun, honestly. Mm. Like I, I started climbing because it was fun and I really missed it. And I wanted to, I wanted to go climbing and not have to just be projecting all the time and do all this, you know, I was like, oh, what happened to just going out and climbing, you know? Tommy though, didn't seem to waver. You know, Tommy was definitely much more unflappable than me. I think he just has this outlook that you can work towards anything and you can kind of set your mind anywhere and you'll get there if you work really hard. And Well, and I think it's interesting too because it's one thing to climb with people like that as partners, but it's another to actually marry them. Yeah. And have personal relationships with people who are stoic. Yeah. Yeah, I think for me, um, I started to really want more in my life past climbing And, you know, we were great, amazing climbing partners together. Like I couldn't imagine a better climbing partner and supporter. And, and I think just to be able to like live life a little bit more, I hate to use it, but like normally, like we never bought a Christmas tree. We never took a vacation once. It's, it's almost like a compression sack. Yeah. Like you stick these emotions down into this hole and you compress it. And I guess that works for some people. Yeah, I mean, it worked for seven years or whatnot, but then it must work for some people, but clearly it didn't work for me in the long run. In 2008, Beth met someone else, and that compression sack finally blew up. She was forced to confront everything, her new desire, her emotions about Kyrgyzstan, and her issues with Tommy. She had to make this choice. I mean, I remember this scene really vividly. I was sitting on my parents' couch, like, you know, in tears and confused. And I was like, I don't know what to do. Should I stay with Tommy? And I was like, I can just suck it up. You know, it's a good life. And I can just suffer through these things and not have certain parts of a relationship that I'm craving or I want or whatnot. Or, or um. And my mom was said, you, you can. That's an option. She's like, but I think it's, you know, going to be a harder path. And I think things might be hard if you go the other way, but they're going to be a lot better. It's quite an act of bravery to leave a marriage that's not working. You know, and you're obviously a really brave woman. You know, I wonder if you kind of think of the bravery metaphor, you know, as extending into your ability to leave. Yeah. Now when I look back at it, I definitely agree with that. You know, it's like everything I knew was with Tommy and we had this perfect life. You know, we owned these two homes and we were like this climbing couple that succeeded in every goal we ever, you know, thought up. And to leave that, you know. Well, you were lucky. You found love again. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, and your current, is is your husband? Yeah. So your, your current husband, he's much more sort of, um, compromising right I mean sometimes he likes to sleep in and sometimes he likes to eat pizza did you have to kind of learn to let go of certain things absolutely and it was not an easy road I was like wait a minute what (laughs) um but yeah it's definitely more you know finding individuality you know and then like being able to have like a partnership with that but like two two distinct people so it took some learning because I I was so welded with Tommy you know like everything was identical you know um and with Randy it's like 
you know he he's an amazing climber but he has a career and sometimes he drinks beer yeah you know and he goes out with friends <laughs> instead of climbing and I'm like at first I was like that's crazy what are you doing <laughs> Beth and Randy married in 2012 they have a two-year-old now named Theo so you and writer Elizabeth Weil have written this really powerful and beautiful piece for Outside. Why do you think it's important to tell your story now, which is so honest about your mistakes and your flaws, the perfectionism, and the unhappiness even that some of your accomplishments weren't able to mask? Why now? You know, after becoming a mom, I think that I really realized that all the like the grayness and all the mistakes and stuff, I think that's like an important part of life. And it's something that I want to pass on to Theo and show him that like that's the fabric of us, you know. You don't have to be perfect and you don't have to walk this rigid line. And and then also honestly to show vulnerability and really open up to people um, I think was a skill that I never really had before. You know, I thought I had to be perfect and this – um, person that you saw on the cover of climbing magazines. And I did that for a really long time. You know, you like shove those hard feelings in a box and you just forge ahead. But after a little while, I'm kind of like, huh, maybe we should like listen to those feelings and talk about them. And, you know, like it's, you can still get to the summit and cry and it's okay. (laughs) So it's been, it's been great to be able to like see that you can have this looseness and life is still great and rewarding and wonderful. That was professional rock climber Beth Rodden talking to Outside's Florence Williams. If you want to read more about Beth's incredible life, her full story is in the May issue of the magazine. And if you want to hear more from Florence, she'll be back next week with another episode of Double X Factor. Thanks again to REI Co-op for sponsoring this series. You can check out all their new offerings for women at rei.com slash forceofnature. And if you like what you've been hearing across the Outside Podcast, stories about adventure and survival and science, I'd like to recommend Science Versus. When it comes to controversial topics, there are a lot of opinions, half-baked arguments, and long-winded Facebook posts. But then there's Science Versus, which figures out what's fact, what's not, and what's somewhere in between. So far, they've looked at questions like, is fracking all that bad? Does the G-spot exist? Does gun control work? Their last episode was just ghosts, and it was great. I mean, you're going to be arguing with your uncle about all this stuff anyway. You might as well win the argument. Hosted by Wendy Zuckerman and produced by Gimlet Media, Science Versus takes facts seriously. But everything else, not so much. That's Science VS. We'll be back next week. <laughs>